Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our special online live session. It's a special series for the time when we're spending an inordinate amount of time in solitude, which of course isn't entirely a bad thing, necessarily, dependent on your circumstances. So tonight we're changing it up again, try to keep you on your toes, remind you of impermanence. I'm not going to take questions at the moment. I tried to turn off the chat, but I can't. I don't think if I turn it off, I can turn it back on again, so the chat is on, but hello, hello, the greetings are, it's great, thank you for greeting, that's all good, but please don't start asking questions, I'm sure it'll happen anyway, but be advised that this isn't the question and answer part of the session. The way I'm going to try to work it tonight is we'll have a half an hour of meditation first and then a half an hour at least of questions, maybe more. Since I'm cutting into the question time, maybe we'll extend the question time after. We'll see. But for now... guided meditation. So please close your eyes. No, no questions, please. So this is guided meditation directed specifically at beginners. But In a way, the beginner mind is a very good tool even for the advanced meditator because over time our mind can fall into patterns of, that are not always perfect, not always optimal for a meditation practice and so we become complacent or our meditation is, well, less than perfect. So by by going back to the beginning and learning from from the, from the start, we can be pushed to observe our habits and recreate and refine our habits fresh. The beginner teachings are good even for advanced practitioners. The meditation which we practice is called Satipatthana Vipassana. What that means is Satipatthana, establishing Sati or cultivating Sati, evoking Sati. What we translate as mindfulness. Vipassana for the purpose of seeing clearly. That's what the meditation is. So we're trying to evoke the state of mindfulness. Satipatthana is not. not like many other meditations. There are broadly speaking two, two types of meditation. One type of meditation that, that a lot of people come to meditation expecting is the kind of meditation that gives you a break from suffering, 
from stress from your life gives you some respite allows you to escape ordinary reality find your happy place, etc. with the idea that that's going to refresh you and make you better able to deal with ordinary reality that's not what satipatthana is it's not what it's designed for it's not what it that's not the result it brings it's not how it's practiced satipatthana the second type of meditation is engaging with ordinary reality in a new way cultivating a new perspective on ordinary reality and so satipatthana is the sort of meditation that confronts unpleasant or pleasant or any other pleasant non neither pleasant nor non-unpleasant experiences confronts reality faces whatever is present with the goal of remembering it just for what it is and thereby seeing it more clearly than our ordinary biased interpretative perspective would allow. So there's a lot in there. What basically we do is remind ourselves of what we're experiencing so that we can remember it's just that's all it is. That's what sati means, to remember. And when we build that up, when we establish that, cultivate that, we see it more we see reality more clearly. We're less likely to or inclined to hurt ourselves, react in a way that causes suffering. And the te technique we use to remind ourselves is just a simple mantra. The mantras are a tried and tested meditation tool meant to focus the attention on an object you just repeat a word to yourself and whatever object you're focusing on becomes clearer and more powerful and more apparent in your mind many types of meditation use this of, of both of the two types I mentioned but with Satipatthana the object is our experience And broadly, broadly speaking, our experience is broken up into four parts. These are called the four satipatthana. So we're going to go through those now. The first satipatthana is gaya. Gaya means the body. So all of our bodily experiences, be they pressure or tension, hardness, softness, heat, cold, stickiness, any physical experience internally or externally, contact with the world around us or something internally, giving rise to sensations we Take these as our object. And so if you're sitting quietly with your eyes closed, a very obvious one is our breath. When you sit quietly, the only movement in the body should be the breath going into the body and the expansion of the chest or abdominal area. And then the breath going out of the body and the subsequent contraction of the abdomen or the chest. Tension, 
and then flaccidity. So if you put your hands on your stomach, you should be able to feel this. If it's not clear, you can put your hand on your stomach and you'll get a sense of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. After some time, once you've calmed down, you'll find it more readily apparent. You don't need your hands anymore. But in the beginning, put your hand on your stomach. And when the stomach rises, just say to yourself, rising. And when it falls, falling. Rising, falling. second object of our focus, the second satipatthana, is called Vedana. Vedana is loosely translated as feeling, but it only refers to three types of feelings. Painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. With painful feelings, any kind of physical pain or any kind of mental pain, sadness and so on, can be an object of mindfulness. Pleasant feelings, physical pleasure, mental happiness, and calm feelings, States of peace, quietude, or just an ordinary sense of equanimity. All of these can be an object of mindfulness. So when you feel pain, focus your attention on the pain. Again, we're focusing on the stomach rising and falling. And when pain comes up, put the stomach aside as an object. 
Focus on the pain and say to yourself, pain, pain, pain. Not trying to make the pain go away. Simply trying to observe it and gain a better perspective on it. Because our ordinary perspective on things like pain is generally fairly unskillful. When we feel pain, we react negatively to it. We, we become stressed, upset. And we, we cultivate desire to remove the pain and, and act out on that desire and are bothered by our efforts to try and remove the pain. By observing simply pain, pain, we train ourselves to be able to see pain just as it is. Because actually pain is neither a good, a positive nor a negative experience. It's merely an experience. We just stay with the pain until it goes away. Once it's gone, come back again to the rising and falling of the stomach, of the abdomen. If after some time the pain doesn't go away, you can just ignore it and go back to the stomach anyway. But stay with it for some time. Try and see it clearly. Try and teach yourself to see it simply as it is. Similarly with pleasant feelings, focus on the pleasure. Say pleasure or happy or however the feeling presents itself. And just stay with it. Again, not trying to make it stay, certainly not making trying to make it go away, but simply experiencing it as it is, because liking of the positive feelings can also cause problems. You become attached to it, expectant, and when it doesn't come in the future, you'll be dissatisfied. So try and teach yourself to see even pleasure just as pleasure. So when it comes, it doesn't give rise to addiction, which would then create a dependency and stress when you don't get what you want. Neutral feelings, when you feel calm, say to yourself, calm, calm. If you feel quiet, just say quiet, quiet. The third satipatthana is, the, is called citta, which means the mind. And so uh, during our meditation, when our mind is distracted, thinking about the past or the future, good thoughts, bad thoughts, doesn't matter, whatever kind of thought arises, 
simply take that as an object and say to ourselves, thinking, thinking. The idea isn't to stop thinking, just like the idea is not to get rid of pain or always experience pleasure. Thinking isn't really the problem. The problem is our reactions to the thoughts. Past thoughts might cause great stress and suffering, feelings of guilt or remorse, feelings of sadness, anger, fear, depression. Same with thoughts of the future, worry, anxiety, fear, or craving, desire, ambition. We can create entire fantasies about the future or get lost in reminiscence about the past and really lose ourselves in the abstract illusions of the past and the future which which don't actually exist in in the present they they become entire worlds in and of themselves but are not real there are our in, uh, extrapolations or our cr mental creations And so you notice a difference between these states of distraction and in opposition living in the present moment. When you're with what's actually happening in the present, you'll find it's a much simpler, a much more peaceful state of mind. The simplicity of being present allows for an amount of peace and freedom that you'll never find by reminiscing about the past or planning for the future. But the good news is that thoughts about the past, thoughts about the future, they're all actually occurring now in the present moment. And if we see that, if our perspective changes so that we can see thoughts as just thoughts, they're here and now, no matter how far in the past we think, the thought is actually happening now. So when we say to ourselves, thinking, thinking, that's all it is. We're present, it's present. It arises and ceases, and then we move on.
the fourth satipatthana is called Dhamma. Dhamma is literally the teachings of the Buddha. And there's many parts to it. The idea here is starting to give a quality to our practice, recognizing good and bad and progressing in deeper states of understanding. But basically, we, as beginners, we can focus on two parts. The first is called the hindrances. These are recognized to be the causes of decline or inability in, in the meditation practice. The causes of disruption. They, they hold us back. They drag behind us. They make our meditation unpleasant, unsuccessful. And so they're a very important first step, uh, first set of objects to focus on. So as you're meditating on the Gaya Vedana, Chitta, the, the other objects, there arise these five hindrances and you don't have to judge them or react to them. In fact, that's really the problem is that we react to them and they become stronger because they are, they are themselves are reactions. So in plain English, they are liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, and doubt. These are states of mind. They're, they're not all exactly reactions, but they're, um, they're habits of mind that are un, unskillful, unwholesome, unbeneficial. They get in the way of meditation practice. But that's not the most important point for us to focus on. All that's important is to know what they are, to know that they're important, and to know that like other objects, we should focus our attention and try to see them clearly see them as they are so that our understanding of them is, is clear and objective. And if they truly are bad for us, harmful for us, that understanding is enough to change our perspective so that we don't engage in them in the future. And so like the other objects, we simply say to ourselves, liking, liking, or wanting, wanting as well disliking, disliking, and, and with its many flavors, there are many sorts of, of disliking. There's anger, frustration, boredom, sadness, depression. And you can note all of those. It doesn't have to be just disliking. If you dislike something, say disliking. If you're angry, you can say angry. If you're frustrated, say frustrated, frustrated. feel tired, say tired, tired. If you feel restless or distracted, say restless, restless or distracted. Distracted is not, is like thinking, but it's like thinking too much. Not just one thought, but many thoughts. Thinking all the time, thinking too much. Outside of the topic of your practice, distraction. If you're worried, say worried, worried. And if you have doubt or confusion, say doubting, doubting, or confused, confused.
And the final object of our awareness, the second part of the Dhamma, is the senses. So if you see anything when you're sitting, say to yourself, seeing, seeing. doesn't matter that it's not really something outside of you that you're seeing. It's still an experience of seeing. So just say seeing, seeing. Same with hearing. If you hear something externally or something internally, some memory creates a sound, say hearing, hearing. If you smell a good smell or bad smell, say smelling. If you taste sweet, sour, salty, doesn't matter, say tasting, tasting. If you feel something on the body, hard, soft, hot, cold, just say tension or whatever, say feeling, feeling, or tense, tense, hot, hot, cold, cold, whatever. And that in, in brief is how to practice, how to begin to practice Satipatthana Vipassana. As a result of this, you're able to see and understand your habits, your character more clearly. You're able to see the objects of experience more clearly, so your character begins to change. Your interactions with reality begin to change. And you'll find you're able, through this very simple practice, to free yourself from stress, to gain power over your emotions. Not that you can control them, but that they don't control you. You have the power to resist, to experience without reaction, to not get caught up in unwholesome, unbeneficial states of mind. That's the guided meditation portion. If you want, and as you should, in the next portion, continue to practice meditation. You don't have to even open your eyes. And if anyone has questions, you can post the questions. But once you've posted a question, just close your eyes again. Continue to practice, and then you wait for the response. If you do post a question, it's helpful if you put at Yutadamobiku in it at the beginning, because then I can catch which ones are questions. Though we find that with the pace of the chat now, Last time I found that uh, most of the posts were questions, so it worked out well. Is karma real or I think this means uh, used as used as consolation? For suffering and people who are passing through unsuccessful it's a way of consoling people who are unsuccessful no karma is very real but it's not real in the sense that most most common understanding goes our, our common understanding is that karma is a, a, a currency of sorts it's a evaluation of a person or it not a, not exactly it's a um, possession, right? The Buddha said, uh, "We have kamma as our inheritance, as our possession." I think. So it can be misleading. You think of karma as this thing that you carry with you. Karma just means action. So the karma is actually something that no longer exists. It existed when you did the action. That's what it was. It was the action. And the Buddha said, actually, it's not the action that's the karma. 
The karma is the mental state when performing an action. So if you step on an ant and you didn't know the ant was there, it's not bad karma. But if you see a karma and you intentionally, with a malevolent mind, step on the ant to kill it, that's bad karma. Why is it bad? And, and why does that actually mean something? Why is there something that comes from it? Because it's a, it's a cultivation of a state of mind. Our minds are not static. We, we have the idea of a soul is not a correct understanding of, of reality. Everything you do changes you. It becomes a habit. You become more inclined, not just in doing that same action, but in the states of mind associated with it. You, you're, you're, you're affected. If you kill someone, it's not just you become more likely to kill someone, but you become violently and, and deeply affected by the experience. It changes you. So to say that that somehow doesn't exist, is incredibly ignorant. And and it, I, I don't mean that in a judgmental way, it's just we're clearly and deeply missing something in our ordinary understanding of reality. And so karma is not something hard to understand. It's just been uh, misun misunderstood, misinterpreted, over-interpreted perhaps. We make more out of it than it actually is, but that's simply karma. Something you do, when you, your, your state of mind at the time when you do it, and while you're doing it, after you do it, all of that is karmically potent. Before you do it, when you're planning to do it, all of that is karma. Because all of that changes who you are. Similarly, if you're helpful, kind to other people, it doesn't stop there. That changes you. Your experience of it changes you. And none of that stops when you pass away. When we talk about death, the death of an individual, that's what you see from the outside. We see this person died or that person died. We don't have any first-hand experience of them dying. And reality simply continues. The moment of death, the body breaks apart, the mind is freed from that uh, pattern of, of experience, and so new patterns of experience arise. And then again gets trapped in a new body of new patterns of experience. And it just continues. But these habits of mind carry over. They carry on. There's nothing magical or mystical about death. It's just not what we think it is. It's just a continuation of the, of the status quo. That our, our actions have consequences. They change us. They change even the world around us. They change people's relationship to us and so on. To, to deny that that is, is real is incredibly oblivious. is the difference between suttas and commentaries I was going to try to keep this to meditation questions I'll, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll answer Buddhist questions if they're simple like this so just put them put them down and then we can put them aside suttas are considered to be what the Buddha taught commentaries are explanations of what the Buddha of those suttas Explanations not given by the Buddha, but given by his followers. What makes a phenomena, phenomenon worth noting? So much is arising in the body and the mind at any moment, it seems I could spend an entire session without returning to the breath. Maybe in the beginning. And no, you don't have to note everything. So what makes it worth it? There's no hard and fast rule. Eventually your mind will calm down, you'll get stronger concentration, and you'll be able to catch things one by one as they come up. 
But when there's many things at once, just pick whatever's clearest, whatever's most obvious and most present. Doesn't really matter if you pick, you can't pick the wrong one or anything like that, because it's a training. You're getting better at it. You become more skillful. So just pick one, note it. Once it's gone, then go back again to the rising and falling. Try to stick to one at a time. Once you've noted the the prevalent one, go back to the stomach, rising, falling. And if something new catches your attention or something old catches your attention again, go back to it. How do we know if it is possible to, to see things clearly and that if the, we think we are seeing things clearly, we are? So more emphasis should be put on the actual activity of straightening your mind in regards to the thing. Just, straightening just means simply getting your head in a place where you see the object just as it is. So saying to yourself, pain, pain. The act of saying that and reminding yourself, that's what you should focus on. As you do that, as you get better at that, you'll see a shift starts to take place where you're actually present, you're actually experiencing the object without reacting to it. That's seeing it clearly. That's the beginning of seeing it clearly. What comes from that is you'll see lots of things. You'll start to learn and understand your yourself much better. But I wouldn't focus on that. That's the sort of thing that just comes and it should flow out of your practice, flow from your practice. Focus on the practice, stay with the practice, and be reassured as you start to see things more clearly, as you start to um, change the way you interact with reality. But once you're reassured, go back to actually being mindful. Is it possible to escape suffering and still retain empathy? How does one not suffer at the sight of others' suffering? You say this as though empathy is a good thing. I'm not saying it's not, not, not yet anyway. But they're just words. And and how do we know that it's a good thing? So the problem is if you if you cling to empathy, this this thing that you're talking about, whatever it might be, if you're clinging to it, well, you, you, that clinging is going to cause you suffering because you might not have empathy, because you'll strive to have empathy and you'll have to work towards it, that sort of thing. When others aren't empathic towards you, empathetic, you might get upset at that as well. When people aren't empathetic towards each other, you'll get upset at that, etc. But the second part clears it up a little bit, where you ask, how does one not suffer at the sight of other suffering? And again, you don't want. I, I, I'm hoping you're not implying. Well. It seems that you might be implying that somehow that's a, a good thing. And it would be wrong if you didn't suffer at the sight of other suffering. The thing is, once you see it more clearly, once you observe that experience of suffering when other people suffer, you'll start to notice that it doesn't actually provide any benefit. And rather it provides harm to suffer at the sight of other suffering. You'll see that. If you don't see that, then my bad carry on because it's not about what I say it's about what you see and I can tell you that what you're going to see and it won't be an intellectual thing where you say oh boy now I understand no it won't be like that it will just be seeing it clearly it will be like opening your eyes your perspective will shift and you'll be less inclined to suffer when other people suffer doesn't mean you'll be less inclined to help them just means you won't suffer as you do it. Or you won't suffer when you can't do it, that sort of thing.
In my practice, it seems like experience is all there is. In reality, are there people, places, and things behind these experiences that persist after they are no longer being experienced? The idea that there might be is not really important. In the most important sense, they do not exist. And what is that important sense? Your experience. Because you're never, ever going to go beyond your experience. Now, Practically speaking, to live in the world, practically by that I mean worldly speaking, so in, in the sense of conducting your everyday life as a human being, you have to deal with conventional reality, the, the idea that these people exist. You have relationships with them, you have responsibilities towards them. But in terms of meditation practice, when you're engaging in mindfulness, and even all the time when you're engaging on a superficial level with people, places, and things. You, you still have the awareness that all that exists is experience. It's just a different perspective. It's not that one is true and the other is false. It's that one is conducive to understanding and clarity and freedom from suffering, and the other really isn't. Because any any person will, will only ever be a product of our experience, and it will be a mental conception. We can never go further than that. We can never find the people behind the experiences. We can only create them in our mind, create ideas of them, and those ideas are completely based on our own interpretation of things. Well, not completely, but they're tainted, they're, they're colored by our interpretation. As a result, that's where a lot of problems come from, because we have expectations, suppositions, we have desires, we want people and places and things to be a certain way. And that's not always in line with reality. In reincarnation there is a belief that there are different dimensions. Is this a true Buddhist belief or a kind of religion? I don't know that dimensions is the right word. I think the idea is that there are beings that human beings can't see, that do not engage in light in, in, the, in the sense that we understand it. So if you want to call those different dimensions, but it's misleading. Dimensions is just a word that cropped up in the last century. It's not really dimensions, because there still only are the three dimensions. Three dimensions is enough to describe space. And then there's time as a fourth dimension. It's not that be other beings live outside of those dimensions necessarily. It might be that those dimensions are limited to our own perception and they're only conventional. But it's not so much that there are other dimensions, it's that there are things beyond our our ability to experience. Uh, in, in an ordinary state. There are states that one can get into or one does experience and interact with those beings or even become one of those beings. I'm confused about food. You have said food should be utilitarian, not to be enjoyed, yet the Dalai Lama seems to really savor his morning meal. Well, I'm not the Dalai Lama is not my teacher, and I'm certainly not his teacher. And we don't have the same teachers. But um, you'd have to ask him if he says if he if he seems to savor a meal. That's quite different from actually saying one should enjoy one's meal in the sense that one should like the food. But I wouldn't put it the way you put it, where I said food should be utilitarian, not to be enjoyed, because those words are a bit misleading. It's, good, it's useful, and you might even say food should be understood as medicine, because that provides some clarity. And maybe utilitarian is an okay word. But it's not that food shouldn't be enjoyed. 
in the sense of their arising pleasure based on it. It's that one should see the pleasure clearly, one should see the experience of eating clearly. One should observe everything that occurs during eating clearly. So it's not a judgment of one should this or should that. But once one sees clearly the nature of the experience, one will be able to distinguish between what is beneficial and what is harmful. And so the, the, the eventual understanding that comes is that it's not really beneficial to like your food. That gives rise to craving, it doesn't actually make it more pleasant. And it certainly doesn't make you more peaceful or more happy as a, as a person. But if I'm wrong, then so be it. It's for you to find out through your practice. If one commits to a mindful life, does one have to give up ice cream and chocolate forever? No. But most likely one will eat less ice cream and chocolate because they are not that useful or beneficial. So, okay, well, I guess in one sense you do have to give up them, but it doesn't mean you'll never have them. And when someone offers them to you, you have to say no. It just means you won't go out of your way to get them. Eventually. And that should happen naturally. You don't have to avoid chocolate or ice cream. You'll just start to say to yourself, why am I having this again? It's not really making me happy. It's not really beneficial. You might even say, mm, this, is getting, this is an obstacle towards my practice. But that's up to you to give it up. You'll give it up naturally. Doubt has been rising up a lot lately in practice. Any advice? Yes, doubt is one of the five hindrances. It's a real obstacle in anything you do. Doubt isn't always rational, in the sense that it isn't always good. It isn't always based on, it's never good, but it isn't always based on some good reason. You can doubt things that are not worth doubting. That's the point. And so I'm not trying to convince you that meditation is not worth doubting, even though it's not. It's important to understand and separate the doubt from whatever it is that you're doubting. And a pr good practice, the practice of mindfulness, is to say to yourself, doubting, doubting. You can even you can just ignore the thing that you're doubting and try to say doubting, doubting, because the practice of mindfulness creates clarity of mind. And that clarity of mind allows you to see whatever it is that you're doubting more, more clearly, you know, more precisely, more accurately. And so doubt has no place at that moment. If you, re if you know for yourself that you don't know the answer to a problem or a question, then there's no doubt. There's the knowledge that you don't know, right? That's what a clear mind comes to. So doubt is never the answer. Doubt is always an obstacle. When there's, when there's uncertainty, you have a certainty that you're uncertain. And it's not certainty that you're uncertain, you have uncertainty that you don't know the answer, basically. So it's a quite a different mind state, even though it has the same result of not being able to decide. There's no doubt. So absolutely forget about whatever you're doubting and focus on the doubt as an object of meditation. I think it finally happened. I answered all the questions. Will this be our last session now that I've answered all the questions? Oh, have I answered all possible questions? 
and there are no more to be asked. Oh, here comes another. Well, I think based on this, I'm going to end at 9 o'clock my time, which is another 6 minutes. So don't all rush to ask questions. Save them for next time. But I'll keep answering until the hour. During meditation, I have sometimes felt specially disoriented as if I was in a huge horizontal space. It scares me and I stop at this point. What's this about? It's a common uh, experience in meditation to have those sorts of experiences. So there's two things going on there. There's the uh, experience, the awareness, and you would just say something like aware, knowing, knowing is a basic English word. Just the knowing is, is just appreciating that you're aware, that there's this awareness, this experience. And if you're afraid, you'd say to yourself, afraid, afraid. If you want some theory as to why it's happening, it's because the mind is beginning to lose its grasp on conventional perceptions of space. Because if you think about it, when you close your eyes, there is nothing telling you um, anything about space. When you hear a sound, that tells you something that gives you some information. When you feel a feeling in the body, that gives you some information. And your mind puts that all together and creates spatiality. As you start to take the experiences just as they are, without reaction, without judgment, without extrapolation, the feelings cease to provide you with that spatiality, the, the, hear, the sounds cease to provide that and, and, and you give up your, your your conceptions of how you're seating, how you're sitting, how the room is oriented and all that. And so there can be a lot of distortion in the mind. But that distortion is not a distortion of reality. It's just showing you the difference between what really is real, and that's experience, and what is only conventionally real based, real in, in some sense, in terms of being constant and consistent, but not real in terms of um, it being only something that arises in the mind. And that's what you start to see. You see that there's really no difference experientially from your distorted perception, quote-unquote distorted, and the, the quote-unquote undistorted perception. They're just both perceptions. So through your practice, that sort of thing arises. Prior is the letter. Prior to the nineteenth century, did most Theravadan monks before Ledi Sayada practice meditation? Why Ledi Sayada? Many there are many Theravada monks. I can't say. I don't know. I wasn't there. Not in this life. Don't remember it. In a past life. What is the relationship between guarding right effort and allowing experiences in order to be mindful of them? It is a matter of non-pursuit rather than a matter of pursuit to gain understanding. So the experiences should all be allowed insofar as they're ordinary experiences. It's the reactions that we want to filter out. But even then, it's not so much about preventing them. It's about understanding them, observing them and seeing them clearly. This is why the Buddha said about the five hindrances, one should see them arise, one should see them cease. He didn't say one should stop them from arising. But as you learn about them, you will stop them from arising because of your new understanding. Because for them to arise requires misunderstanding. It requires delusion. And once that delusion is gone, they just can't arise. So it is, in a sense, I think non-pursuit is, is, is proper to say. 
rather than pursuit, it's um, observation. Many of your instructions seem to be just observe, but I've seen in suttas instructions on how to react to hindrances and such. Am I wrong to see a discrepancy here? Um, there are many teachings in the suttas, and they were always given to specific people. And in many times the Buddha was playing the long game in the sense of, of leading them through a very sort of... Um, uh, detailed and, and staged practice. So a lot of people would practice tranquility uh, in the beginning. But even putting that aside, there are many practices that are uh, conventionally or, or provisionally useful. And those are practices of reacting, practices of practically dealing with things that can be overwhelming. But there is a the, the Buddha's teaching is very very broad, and there's many things that he taught, and some of them might even seem to conflict, as you're seeing here. But read the Satipatthana Sutta, and that's what I'm trying to teach. If I'm not in line with the Satipatthana Sutta, which I think is one of the most core sort of teachings of the Buddha, based on what he's himself said, if I'm out of line with that, then you're, you're welcome to follow it. But that's what I mean when I say observing sati. It's not quite just observing. It's um, it's not just observing. It's reminding yourself. It's actually a proactive step you take to change the way you perceive something by reminding yourself it is what it is. But uh, you can't just read all the suttas and try to put together a single practice from them because they were given to many different people in many different situations and circumstances. And with many different interpretations by many different followers. And translators. Is not having a plan acceptable? Oh, yes. It's not having a plan acceptable. Well, your plan should be to be mindful as much as you can. That's probably the best plan. But yes, I think in general plans, planning is not the best way to approach life. Try and learn to be present and you'll see that it changes, that yeah, actually plans don't make so much sense. In the lives of most monks, well, I don't know that you could specify for monks, what are the hardest times to keep mindful? I'm not sure what this question is aiming at, why you're asking this question, what is the purpose of this question? A better question might be, what do you do when it's hard to be mindful? I did make a video on, on this specific topic, on that specific topic. Uh, dealing with difficult objects or something. Difficult objects of meditation. So I'm going to defer that. And wish you all a good night. I don't have a closing message, but I'll make one. I'll say something like, thank you for coming or goodbye. May all beings be well. May you all be well and happy. May you all find peace during this troubling time, especially. May you all be mindful and able to deal to the best of your ability with the deck you've been dealt or you've dealt yourself in life. Wish you all the best. <laughs>